Where is this? Where is it? No. No. Iceland's interesting. It's not enough snow. It's got ice in the name, man. Show you a photo later on. Yeah, it's all right. <laughs> um, this is thought to be the horns of Hatton. Here and here. The horns of Hatton. And that would have been visible, scholars think, to Jesus when he was preaching the Sermon on the Mount. So we don't know exactly where that happened, but it's highly likely that in these mountains around, Jesus was teaching the Sermon on the Mount, and he could, within uh, the vicinity of the horns of Hatton. And from this location, you can see the city called Safed. Oh, that's not good, Pete. There we go. Not that that's Pete's fault, it's just not good that our, we thought we had our clicker problem solved. So this is the city of Safed. It's 2,600 feet above sea level and is now considered to be one of the four holy cities of the Jews. And Jesus, during Jesus' time, it was highly likely that it was a fortress. So as you can see, well, as you can imagine now, it's a city, but at Jesus' time, it's thought to be a fortress. So as he's teaching the Sermon on the Mount, in the distance, they could see this city on a hill. Now, the city was a place of refuge. If you were being hunted or you were attacked, you could go there. It was a place of hope if you were lost in the desert. It was a place of shelter for the rest and rest for the weary. And cities were put on hills for those people whose phone failed, their GPS failed, they couldn't find the city. And so they would look to the hills and that's why cities were built on hills. They were fortified with giant white limestone walls, which meant they basically glowed when the sun or the moon hit them. They were easy to see. So a city on a hill was easy to see. Now Jesus is teaching the Sermon on the Mount within eyeshot of Safed, and he says these words in Matthew 5. You're the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. Now, light was a crucial symbol in the Jewish worldview. Just as a Greek might have prized knowledge and the Roman culture, they valued glory. The Australian culture... We love lifestyle. Just make things nice and comfortable. Want a good lifestyle? For a Hebrew, the ideal standard was light. And Jesus takes that idea of light for those who are listening to him. And he says that all humankind needs light. And you, as he's speaking to his disciples and to the many others that are gathered, you, if you have God, you have this light. You are embodied by this light. You have been lit up by God. Not to be hidden, because you'd never hide a city on a hill. But so the whole world can see what you represent, what you are reflecting. Now, interesting question. You know what this place is, I hope. You're probably sitting about just in there. Or oh, just in there. 
Do you know what the nickname of this place is? Do you know what it's affectionately known as in and around Burley? Church on the Hill. Church on the Hill. Churches were built on hills when they were first established in townships for two reasons. One, because if they built a church on the hill, most people would then live around the church, making the church the centre of the community. And secondly, it was on a hill so that when people would look up to God, they would see the church and they would be encouraged in their faith. They would be filled with hope. And so people ask me, they go, which church do you go to? Do you belong to? And I say, the church on the hill, the church at the top of James Street. And they go, they say two things always. They go, I know the one. And then they say, does stuff happen there? <laughs> it's true. It's like, oh, wow, I'm shocked. There are people that are alive and breathing. They go there. It's like we've snuck under a bowl instead of glowing in the dark. And we need to glow in the dark again. So let me offer you, as I did this morning, an overview of what our single church now does. Monday through Sunday, this is what we have going on. There are two services every week, one with a thriving kids ministry. There's an art group on Mondays, a friendship group for seniors on Wednesdays. There's a bread pickup that happens on Thursdays that then gets distributed out to the community. There's a youth ministry on Thursdays, play group on Fridays, Bible study on Friday afternoons. We also teach RI in Canindraba Primary. We help out with community events. We do a lot of work at Burley Head State School. We provide food to various food banks. We dispense the bread that we collect throughout the community. We provide support to state, national and international organisations who are in need. We use the pro this property to help alcoholics, to feed the poor and hungry, to teach self-defence and discipline. It's the home for a choir as well as two other churches who can come and do ministry here for a super affordable rate. That's what we do. That's us as of last Sunday, pending presbytery approval. That's us. Now the implications of this are massive. This means that when us, all of us now, what we used to call Village and Burley Hedge United Church, but all of us, this means that when someone is sick or someone needs to be discipled or there's a missional opportunity or the homeless need helping or things could be done better in the life of the church or when more volunteers are needed or when someone is disconnected and lonely, when there's someone trying to escape domestic abuse and violence, when someone isn't using their gifts, when we are not venturing out into the community with the gospel, when we're not loving our neighbourhoods, then it's our problem. It's our problem. It's not my problem alone. It's not the problem of the council or the leadership or the implementation team or the person that you immediately may want to blame. It's not the organisational church's problem. It is our problem. It's your problem to solve as much as it is mine. See, we are now officially a we. We've always been a we, but we've found it hard to grab hold of the fact that we've been a we, and then last week we said we want to be a we, and we became an official we. There's no village differentiation between Burley Hedge Uniting Church. There's a 4 p.m. expression, there's a 9 a.m. expression, but we are a we, which means the inevitable truth. That's my church. Not just here, but the morning, 
the 9 a.m. That's my church. That's your church. That's our church. Let's try it on. When you think about the 9 a.m. morning, you might not know anything about it. It might not have been. There'll be an opportunity next week, which I'll talk about in just a jiffy. So when you think about 9 a.m. service, and I want you to say, we're all going to say it together, that's my church. Ready? One, two, three. That's my church. And here's why it's important. When things aren't working, and little insider here from a pastor, stuff never always works all the time in a church ever. So when stuff's not working, when stuff's not how it should be, when things are not moving forward as we'd like, it's your problem. And it's my problem. And it's our problem. But it's never, ever, ever their problem ever in any circumstance it's never their problem whoever the they are it's not an opportunity to blame because blame divides and it hurts and it disempowers people now when Haim was about four he's nearly six but when he was about four he had a very interesting relationship with shoes and poor Haim, he just struggled to find shoes that felt good on his feet. But sometimes, as you know, because you're all humans, you need shoes to go to certain events and do certain things. And so he was required to put these shoes on. And I would more often than not chuckle when he would get so frustrated that the shoes didn't feel good on his feet. And he would tear them off and then he would verbally abuse the shoes. So he would throw them away and he would tell them exactly what I thought of these shoes. Just blame the shoes. Your stupid shoes, you should fit on my feet. I cannot believe you would do this to me. And I have to have a little bit of a chuckle because the shoes aren't actually going to do much in response to that. I said to Haim, Haim, we've been through this. The shoes fit. They're fine. We just need to put them on properly. And all of a sudden, he realized that the shoes were not to blame, that mum and dad were to blame because we got in the shoes. So his wrath would turn from the shoes upon Lyndall or I or whoever's in that space. And we would cop this wrath that it's our fault that his shoes didn't fit. And when we said, remember, we went to the shop, we tried it on, you've worn them before, it's all good. He would realize that the event he had to wear the shoes to was what needed blaming. If that didn't exist, he wouldn't have a problem. And so then he would say, it's stupid that I have to go to church or this or that because his shoes didn't fit and I would pull into myself and Zara was the same and I'd say you know guys when we blame others we completely disempower ourselves we have no power to change the circumstance or the situation whatsoever when we cast blame you see blame it separates and divides us blame hurts those who are being blamed the shoes were okay by the way they were I checked with them the feelings were okay but blame renders us powerless to be able to make a difference most importantly, blame actively works against the flow of grace. So when it comes to church, if we blame someone, whether that's me or our leaders or the council or the person across the church or the person next to you, whether we blame someone, we're doing three things. First of all, we're hurting them or we're risking hurting them for nothing. Second, we're dividing ourselves from them and whoever else we've told. You know, sometimes we usually have a bit of a whinge to work out who we should blame, and then we blame. 
And then thirdly, we're making ourselves powerless to actually make a difference in the situation. But interestingly enough, the Bible has some words around this. In Ephesians 1, verse 4, it says, For he, God, chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and, say with me, blameless in his sight. We have been chosen to be blameless, have no blame, hold no blame, issue no blame, take no blame from God. We have been spared the blame of God on us by Jesus. We can't possibly then take that blame and stick it on others. We've been spared it. We are blameless. Before the creation of the world, it was set in stone that we are blameless before God. And when we have God, we don't need to blame others. You ever notice that? We blame because of an inadequacy in something or someone or something we see. But if we, instead of facing blame, we turn to God and say, God, I want you to either show me what I need to do or make up for that inadequacy. We put our faith in God rather than our blame on others. Now, interesting experiment. You're going to hate this if you do it, but it's a lot of fun. Well, it's a lot of fun when you haven't done it just yet. I want you to think this week, just do a lot of kind of mental audit as you go through this week and see how many times you blame others. For example, you might be driving along and someone cuts in front of you and you're like, oh, I shouldn't blame you because Ralph talked about this on Sunday. Or you're waiting at the supermarket and someone pushes in and you're like, but yeah, that's wonderful. I'm not blaming, it's great. Something happens we don't like, it's so easy to jump to blame. And blame disempowers us, it divides us, it separates us from being part of what that solution is. So I'd encourage you to do that this week. We don't have to share next week. But do, we can if you want. But, but do it and see, see where that rates in our lives. Often when we can see what's happening, we can be empowered to actually make a difference. You see, we can't move towards God's vision if we entertain blame. You actually move against it. This place isn't how it used to be. How could you? And we say stuck. And God's like, no, no, I want you to come with me. And God has an incredible vision for us. God has a blow your socks off, put your seatbelts on, hold on tight. Without God, this vision will not work vision for us. But just having a vision isn't enough. Our vision up to last weekend, up to last Sunday, our vision was quite a daunting one when it first started out and got to the point where like let's just live the vision and the vision was to merge right that was the vision vision accomplished it was a picture of God's preferred future for where we were and God says that's where I want you to head and we got there and God says great well done now now you should see what's ahead now we have a different vision from God so first of all we need to receive a vision. And a vision is God's gift to us and to the world. A vision isn't to satisfy our own needs. That's not a God-given vision. A God-given vision enables us to sacrifice ourselves with purpose for the things of God. It's meant to be exhilarating and terrifying and daunting and scary, but wonderful and incredible if it comes off. That's what truly makes us alive. God's vision isn't about us, and it's actually not about Burley either. It's all about God. 
And it's an invitation for us to move forward with God. And if we don't, the Bible's pretty clear. It says you'll perish. It might be spiritually, it might be physically, but you will perish if there's no vision. And we have a vision. We've been contributing to it the last two years. It's what was through all the documents of that lovely M word I refuse to say anymore. Merger, in case you weren't sure what I was talking about. But we had a picture in that of God's desired picture for us for the future. And, and the first piece, there's four pieces to it. None of this should be new to you. The first piece is custom designed mission. What is the unique contribution that we need to make to further the kingdom of God in Burley and in the Gold Coast? So we need to look at what our gifts are and what our calling is. We need to see what our passions are and how that meets the needs of the community. And then we need to intersect those things and do them. That's the first part of our vision. Then we need to be multi-generational. As I said this morning, every single person who is part of our church is a valuable person in our church. Every single one. No matter if you're newborn or you're knocking on the door of 100 years old, everyone in between, regardless of age, of gender, of uh, background, of race, of ethnicity, of worldview, every single person is valuable in what God is doing. And we need to learn how to balance the needs of those who are well seasoned in years with the needs of our children, who are, as you would have seen, 21st century children. They are a little bit crazy and not perhaps um, uh, helpful to people with hearing aids, for example, who are trying to listen. All this means we need to become friends, which brings me to talk about next week. So next week we have a combined service at 9 a.m. We won't be meeting here at 4 p.m. We have a 9 a.m. combined service. And in that, I'm going to do a couple of things which hopefully enable us to start building friendships or continue some of those friendships that are being built. Now, the large gap in our church is also the largest gap in every church in Australia. It's the 18 to 24 gap. Welcome to that gap, Sam. (laughs) Emmy's already there. Kate's already there. But welcome today, Sam. It's very exciting. You guys are the most important age group in any church because you will determine in 20 years' time whether we are thriving or dead. You are the guys that need to shape what our worship looks like and our mission and our culture and the rest of us need to be not not letting you have that burden but cheering you on as you help us navigate a world that... Well, if you're over the age of 24, I know like it's just going to be gentle around this, right? It's a bit sensitive. Over the age of 24, you are too old to be culturally relevant. Sorry. I realize that I just, just sit in 24, just, just on the verge. But the rest of you, you're just too old. You're just too old, guys. So we need to encourage these three and pray for them and champion them until the three turns into 30, turns into 300. It's an important piece. And then perhaps the most controversial piece in the whole, um, the whole deal of this is style of worship. For us, it's not so much a, a bigger deal, but I know for our morning crew it is. But what we offer on Sunday needs to speak to the hearts, the minds and the souls of those people we are called to reach in Burley and the Gold Coast, not just to us. 
We need to use music and language that the Burley community can relate to. Because worship isn't just about honouring a tradition, and it's not just about staying up with the culture and all modern. It's about attracting non-believers through comprehensive worship and leading them to a personal commitment to Jesus Christ. And if hymns are the answer to that, we need to do that really, really well. And if Hillsong style music is the answer to that, we need to do that really, really well. And if bongos and acoustic guitar and fire twirling, come on, is the answer to that, we need to do it really, really well, but we need to find and discover the vehicle that people who don't know Jesus can meet Jesus through learning to worship in a, in a, in a way, in a channel that's of least resistance to them. And wherever we land, and it will be a slow progress. It's not like next week I'm going to bring in some like fire things and that's a great idea, isn't it? No, I won't do that. It's not like we're going to change everything up immediately, but we need to move toward this vision that God sets us. Our worship is all about honoring and uplifting God. It's actually got nothing to do with meeting our needs. Worship is all about honoring and uplifting God. And then the final piece of this vision is to use this property and develop this property. Now, we have been amazingly gifted by God. This property, I reckon, it'd be interesting to see if you, if you disagree, but it must be the best placed church property in the country. Not just in our denomination, but in the country. It's just staggering. It'd be good if it was a bit bigger and we could do a few more things with it. But God has placed us on the hill in the middle of Burley and I constantly have other pastors go, oh, I wish we had that space. Because it's seen all the time by people who are part of the community. So we need to cultivate this gift. We need to, to use this gift to achieve our missional purposes and to equip us for our missional purposes. Now they're the four pieces of the vision that God has put before us. And you each have a part to play. Each of you have a very important part to play. There is a role for you. There is something unique and brilliant and beautiful and invaluable that you have to contribute. Without you, it's not the full picture of what God has called you here for it to be. This is what we need to give our all to. This is what we need to play our part in. It's why God has called you to this church, to see this vision, this four-piece vision fulfilled. Now, receiving a vision is nice, but if it stops there, nothing happens. Because we have to own the vision. Owning a vision is as simple as an accepting it as your personal responsibility. Think about that for a sec. You take those four things we talked about and you walk out here tonight and go, that's my personal responsibility to see those take place. It starts to get some traction, right? We start to, to get there. Now, people pitch visions to me all the time. People own visions and they pitch them to me all the time. For example, if you come over to my house at the moment, you will see my fence. Now, this, just, here you go, this is where the line of the fence should be, all the way to the back of the property. And this is where it is. If you look at it from side angles, the line looks like this. 
It's terrible. What happened is 15 years ago, they built it on a retaining wall that is now starting to move and shift. And our whole house is bearing down on that fence. And as a result, the fence is about to fall over if it weren't for that tree that you can see just at the back that we're very, very thankful for. It's got to cost a ton of money. But one of the interesting things this tree does, this fence does, is it evokes the visionary in people. They come around or they come past and they go, whew, bit of a problem with the fence. Yeah, tell me about it. They go, you ever thought about fixing it? (laughs) No, it's brilliant. Tell me more. Looks like there's a problem with the retaining wall too. Oh, yeah, I didn't, that, yeah. What do you got, what do you got? Colour bond fence. Stick a a timber fence, get rid of that. Put a colour bond fence on it. And then they go away. So, So they received a vision and they own the vision. They're like, this is a brilliant idea and you should do it. And then they went away. Now, rightly so, it's not their fence. <laughs> It'd be just strange if they went, and I'll fix it now. <laughs> wow, you're going to make your way into a sermon. Easy done. They've seen the problem. They received the vision. They own that vision as the solution, but it doesn't fix the fence, does it? Just owning the vision doesn't mean the vision comes to be. We can own those four pieces and go, yes. But it doesn't mean it's actually going to happen. Every one of you is a visionary. Did you know that? Every one of you is a visionary. You have the capacity and you do it all the time. You see something and you think it could be better if this were done. You look at my fence and go, oh, Ralph, I have a vision for that. You're visionary. But it doesn't mean anything if nothing changes as a result of that vision, if nothing gets fixed. One of the reasons that we've merged with Burley Heads Uniting Church is that we cannot stay the same. For the sake of those who do not know Jesus as their personal Lord and Saviour, we cannot remain who we are. And a vision is something God calls the church toward. He beckons us to follow. He keeps pointing it to us when we're discouraged. He whispers about it when our sight slips from it. But owning it isn't enough. It's not enough to go, yes, I agree. I'm on board. That's great. Churches are full of people across our country who say, this is my church. I don't do anything, but this is my church. I love its vision. It doesn't make any sense in the kingdom. So the final aspect of being part of what God calls us to is this, to invest in the vision. I've been president at the PNC, a Burley Head State School now. It took me a bit to work this out, but for four years. And four weeks' time, there's a vote to see if they want me again. We'll see what happens. But I remember the exact moment I invested in the vision. So I'd gone along to a ton of meetings. I'd met people. I'd helped out here and there. We'd done some things together. But I was still holding it at arm's length. It wasn't my vision. I was like, yeah, no, I can get on board with it. I agree with it. It's great. And then they were talking about an event they just had. And part of the event they'd had is they'd taken these big signs and put them up all over Burley and zip tied them to precarious positions. So at the time they're like, this is going to get amazing viewage from people in their cars. And so they put these things up and then it came to the other end of the event when they said, we now need to go and remember where we put them all and take them all down. And something shifted in me and said, I'll do it. They went, no, 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 no. I said, no, seriously, I'll do it. I'll go find them all and I'll take them all down. And so nine o'clock that night, I'm out with my pliers, dressed in black, black hoodie, black balaclava, 
I didn't want to get busted. I was definitely dobbing in the principal if I did. And, and I snug, I park, it was ridiculous. I park at the side of the road and then I wait for the traffic and I dash across to the middle of the road and I clip this sign and then I run back. And then they, they put them on fences and I, it was just horrendous where they put these signs. And as I'm doing this, I'm like, I'm invested now. I feel invested. This isn't just an idea. I'm part of it. I'm part of it. I got the vision. I even owned the vision, but it wasn't till that moment when I became invested in it. And it's not until we actually invest in the vision that we go, oh, now I get it. I get the gravity of it. I get the power of it. I get the, the importance of it. Investing in the vision Investing in this vision means we get to live in God's life rather than requiring God to live in ours. Investing means sacrifice and it means generosity, it means prayer, it means going the extra mile, it means embracing inconvenience because you realise what God wants to get done and the fact that he died for it to happen. Now I reckon the only exception to this, and I need to say this, the only exception to the requirement God puts on us to invest in his vision is if we're in a season of healing. If we're in a season where we've come out of something where we need to be healed and God says, no, 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 you need to be here and be blessed and I'm going to heal you while this vision takes place to the point where you're well and strong enough to be part of the vision. And maybe perhaps some of you or some that will listen to this recording are in that season of healing. And it's not a passive season. Healing isn't passive. I'd much rather to be in a season of vision than a season of healing. Healing is hard. But it's more about accepting God's vision for your healing than it is God's vision for the church. And that's where a struggle for some come. They go, why? I feel I, I can't buy into that vision. I've got these hurts. And God's saying, no, 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 no. That's the church's vision. Let me heal you. Let me give a vision for your healing and renew that in your life so that you can then go, ah, I can take on board this vision. I can own this vision. I can invest in this vision. You can't accept the vision of the church because you're overlooking the vision God has for your own, own healing first. Investing in God's healing of you is imperative if you want to one day invest in the vision God has for the church. Remember that city on the hill, Safed? You saw it before. It's not coming back. <laughs> 2,600 feet above sea level with these massive limestone walls. It was positioned there and built there for a single purpose. And all... Everything else it did derived out of the single purpose. And that single purpose was to reflect light. It was to be known. Now, if the walls were damaged, they were fixed or they healed before the city could be accurately reflecting light. But its purpose was to reflect light. So healing and fixing the walls became a priority. So when Jesus says those incredible words about light, about the most sacred thing in all Hebraic culture. You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hidden. He was saying, our role as a church, your role as disciples, 
as investors in the vision, is to be a reflection of God's light into the world. It's what you're called to do. You are not the light. You are the light of the world. You are lit up by the true light, a light shone from the cross into our lives. And at the heart of our vision, the very heart of our vision is the absolute necessity that we can only receive a vision and own it and invest in it if we first received and owned and invested in what Jesus did on the cross for us. It's the only way a vision like this takes place. Only then can we grow in our capacity to reflect God's light. You see, the vision is something that becomes clearer when light shines on it. The vision becomes something we can move toward when we see clearly it in the light. The vision is what we invest in when the light burns hot in us and needs to be channeled. And the vision is what the light is channeled into. But that light shines into our lives from the cross. It's the cross that gives that light. And the cross is where we begin, what Jesus did on the cross. So I'm going to pray and then we're going to worship. We're going to worship and give thanks to God for what he did for us on the cross. Lord, we are so thankful for calling us here, for being part of this, for the vision that you have put ahead of us, for the things you call us toward, for the gifts you have given us, for this season of life that we are in, Lord. And whilst it be daunting and intimidating, whilst we may not be quite clear where to begin or how to move toward it, Lord, it is your vision for us, and so we pray you would carry us toward it as a church, as a congregation, and as individuals, Lord. May we receive this vision and own this vision and then invest ourselves in what you're wanting to do in this world. And Lord, may you be lifted high. May people look at what happens and not worship this church, but worship you. May people be touched by your love and see that it is your love and your light shining into them and has very little to do with us. And Lord, receive our worship as we now bring it, as we declare you Lord of all, thankful for everything you have done for us on the cross. We ask this in your name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.